before we begin, did anybody else, was anybody else struck by that piece of 90s CCM that was playing right at the end of our time in giving? No? Am I the only one? Oh, the song Flood from, I forget what band that was. Uh, Jars of Clay, thank you. Wow, I was, so, I was struck by it. Anyway, that took me to a time and place. Uh, but apparently nobody else listened to Jars of Clay. But at any rate, on to bigger business. Um, uh, dealing with Cain so far as we move forward in the passage that's been read for you, you see once again Cain, the, the, the central piece uh, of the burden that Cain bears is uh, spiritual in nature. That, that, that's the biggest burden that he's bearing. Again, uh, it, it, notice how he describes what, um, his response to God's uh, cursing judgment. Look at verse 14. Behold, th- this is how I conceive of what has just occurred to me in light of my punishment. Th- this is how I'm understanding it. This is, this is the language in verse 14. Behold, this is what, I, what I'm hearing. You, this is what's occurred. You have driven me today away from the ground. And, 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 and that difficulty of the life that he had in its fertility, its working, his, his synergism there, his synergistic work with the ground. It was symbiotic, perhaps, the way to say it. And, and then notice how he says, and from your face I shall be hidden. Again, then, then what flows from that, because from your face I will be hidden, I'm going to be a wanderer. Um, and, and the wandering that I will endure because I'm hidden from your face, the connection between hidden from your face and being a wanderer is I'm outside of divine protection. Be, because I'm booted from you, uh, and I'm sent out alone, I'm very likely going to be killed. Because I'm no longer abiding in the place of your presence. You see, we'd call it excommunication from the people of God. That's what Cain knows to be the greatest burden. Behold, that he cannot bear. My punishment is too great for me to bear. I will come to a sudden end. Because I have been excommunicated from the people of God. Again, the language of fugitive and wanderer. The language that speaks of a loss of home and community. I, I, I belonged here. And, and I resided within the safe haven of this community. This family unit. And I partook of the same blessings that they possessed. Though he was only accidentally attached to them, not by faith, but by presence, he shared in the blessings of God to his people, though he himself was not one of them. Now he knows, I will lose this home, I will lose this community, and I'm hidden from you, which means spiritually, I'm excommunicated. And this excommunication then makes Cain, he knows it, it makes him vulnerable to anyone seeking to avenge the death of Abel. Any yet known uh, uh, individual who perhaps through family ties, through discussion, through the time of passage of the discussion of what took place, maybe with a vengeful spirit, seeks to avenge Abel's death on Cain. Or simply because Cain is now outside the boundaries of community and safety. He's an easy victim. 
So the rest of Cain's days, you think about it, that's, this is, again, why he says in such heavy-handed language, it's too much for me to bear. Because for the rest of his days, he will fear the sound of a falling leaf, though he fear not God. For such, says Luther, is the way of the impious. They fear time. They fear shadow. They fear darkness. For there is no peace and there is no rest. Noteworthy here as we think of his excommunication, his ban from the people of God. Noteworthy here on the um, very human texture to this story. Um, it's not recorded, but I think it's fair to read between the lines. At some point, Adam, his father, would have had to carry out the verdict. Um, again, I don't think we can overstate the heartache of the situation. When That's why we labored so hard at the beginning of uh, chapter 4, with recognizing the, old, the, the, the lavish praise and excitement they had at the birth of Cain. Um, and, and somewhere by 40 years old or so, uh, he's murdered his brother. Um, and now that he must be banished from their presence, from their family's presence, he has to go. Absolutely has to go. Um, the father has to carry out the verdict. The heartbreak that that brought to the mom, Eve, and to the father, Adam. The death of one son, and now the absolute banishment and loss of another. Uh, it's a tragedy on top of tragedy. Um, and it was a great burden that Adam, the father, had to bear. Not to mention Eve, his wife, who gave birth to Cain and said, I have achieved a man with the help of the Lord. What a heartbreaking scenario we have here in the story of Cain and Abel. Cain, then, now, as sent away, just to be clear, is both spiritually and physically separated from God. Of course, again, Cain knowing the spiritual separation is what makes for the physical vulnerability. It's not that God will lose track of Cain, won't know where he resides. He will be apart from the blessing of God's presence, um, as with the believing family. And that is the disaster. That's the burden he will bear. But notice as the text progresses then, God's response to Cain's newfound vulnerability. Look, look at how God responds. So, so Cain, this is too much. You've done too much. I, I can't bear what is taking to me. Um, uh, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today from the ground where I, li where I lived, where I worked, the fruitfulness. From your face I shall be hidden in all manners of burden that flow from that. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me now will kill me. And the Lord's response to Cain, then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Now, important, and I, I want you to think with me a, a little bit about this. Um, uh, there's, there's some distinctions that we need to carefully make here about what God is and is not providing Cain in the context of his judgment. I want you to consider with me just briefly the nature of God's mercy or the nature of God's pledge to Cain. Notice, uh, I'm vulnerable. Uh, I'm going to be killed by whoever finds me. 
be as an outcome of your judgment on me. Now, notice what God says in a, and I I want you to kind of key in on this. It it can be described in a few different senses. We describe it, maybe you've heard this, and I I won't labor long here, but I do think it's uh, it's kind of a mental hook that that you should kind of have. So, So I won't labor long, but think with me about this, because God just judged Cain horrendously. And Cain is the one who knows it. It's not like we have to read into it. Cain himself is saying, this is so severe, I cannot bear it. So he knows what's being done. But then God says to him, as he says, Anyone's gonna, someone is going to rise up and kill me. And God says to him, not so. so. So he says something back to Cain that in his judgment is still in the category of merciful. So, so think with me just for a moment. What we'd call it, perhaps, perhaps you're aware of this term, it's called common grace or, or common mercy. Okay, or, or another way to describe it. And, and this is important because we're going to see it in live operations. This sense of common goodness or provisional mercy. We're going to see that just later. And you saw it in the reading um, uh, uh, when Pastor Dan was reading it at the introduction uh, the reading where it went through the cultural developments of Cain's lineage. This cultural development is due to the common mercies of God or the common grace of God, which is flowing from what God is saying to Cain here in this very first response to Cain saying, I cannot bear what you, are, what, what you have done to me. So again, it is called provisional or accidental or common mercy that God pledges to Cain in this moment. What do I mean by that? Well, think about it just for a moment. In in the sense of provisional mercy or common mercy or common grace, that is a mercy or a grace that is shown without direct or promise, without direct or definite promise of protection. Notice what he didn't say. So look at the text with me, and I'll clarify all of the muddy water that I just stirred up from the bottom. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground. From your face I shall be hidden. I know what that means. I'll be a fugitive of honor. Whoever finds me will, the inevitable outcome, they will find me and they will kill me. The Lord said to him, not so. If, now key in on the the word of mercy, on the word of graciousness, in the context of judgment, the nature of this mercy, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. But notice what he does not say. Because maybe you're thinking right then, he just guaranteed that Cain will not be killed. But he didn't. Notice he does not say, not so, for I will protect you. Or notice that he does not say, if you think about this promise or this sense of mercy carefully, you notice that he does not say, I will defend you. Neither does God promise. Even in the word of judgment or in recompense given to the one who would rise up and potentially and possibly kill Cain, he does not promise that men everywhere will abide by this word. Do you you see, it's provisional, but it is not definite. It is not anchored in assurance. 
Now, with that in mind, just again, remember, he is sent away from God's presence without an assurance of abiding, abiding and divine aid. Now, I'll skip ahead just for a moment to bring clarity, perhaps. If you're a Christian and your faith resides, terminates in, anchors in Jesus Christ, you belong to definite promise and definite mercy, assured grace. That is something that belongs beyond simple provisions or that which is common. You belong to that which is particular and that which is definite. So it is that, again, once again, he doesn't say, not so, everyone's going to kill me. Not so, I will protect you. He does not say, but to the Christian, he does. I will protect you. Again, he doesn't say, I will defend you. But to the believer whose faith terminates in Christ, he does indeed say, I will defend you. Again, in the place of definite promise, assured mercy, God simply pledges severity of punishment upon whoever rises up and kills Cain. That's the the best that Cain is going to get. I will pledge, not that all men will obey this, but I will pledge to you, even in judgment, a provisional mercy that whoever does, if someone were, to murder you, their judgment will be sevenfold. You see, I, I want you to think on this with me, to understand the distinction between the people of God, that which uh, uh, Abel represents as a man of faith, and th- th- those who are not the people of God, that is, the wicked, as exemplified here in Cain, There are distinctions between the mercies and the graces that each experience. And it is all due to the Lord Jesus Christ. Sure promises, definite promises, unwavering promises of imminent divine aid and substantial mercies, covenant mercies, That is, mercy that belongs to saving, forgiving, redeeming grace is reserved for God's elect. This is what we're witnessing in the general mercy that is shown to Cain versus the definite mercy that is shown to those of faith, the people of God. I can't give an exact Uh, Example yet, unless I skip ahead to the birth of Seth at the end of the text. But we're going to get there later. But just to throw that out, the idea of the people of God and the definite, assured mercies of God attending to their way as exemplified even through the birth of Seth at the end of chapter 4. You see, the promises of sure and saving mercy belong to each one who has saving faith that terminates on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is they, that is you, a Christian. 
If your faith abides in Jesus Christ, faith alone, by grace alone, apart from a calculation of your efforts and works, but by the surety of the Lord and his grace, it is you then, it is they who experience the promises belonging to the goodness of God's will, the goodness of God's mercy, and the goodness of his work through Christ on their behalf all their days. This is not what Cain has given. In this grace, in this particularized grace, in this redemptive grace, in this covenant mercy, Cain has absolutely no inheritance. You see, that right there, uh, don't worry, I'm not going to, but we could potentially conclude the sermon right there. But you've got like 45 more minutes. But you you, you see, you're, you're looking at Cain as a sign and symbol, though he is a genuine, real origin character, he also, by God's treatment, is a sign of what belongs to the house of unbelief. There is no surety. There is no peace. Even if your life kind of, the the turbulence settles, that's not the same thing. Like the absence of turbulence doesn't equal peace. For in the house of the ungodly, turbulence is kicked up yet once again in a moment. But abiding peace, abiding rest, abiding assurance belongs to the house of the godly. All whose faith terminates on the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. Notice carefully as we look through the text, though, how the general or generic mercy or the common grace shown to Cain is particularized in, two, in a twofold manner. So, so he gives out this general comment, not so. Um, who, whoever, uh, this is the generic promise of the text. And I don't even want to use the word promise because, he, again, he doesn't promise its outcome. He gives a general pledge or a generic pledge of basic provisional mercy. It's non-particular, it's not surety, and it's non-saving. But it is particularized, the way that God would show a generic mercy to the man Cain. Notice how it opens up. So he says, not so. You're not going to die tomorrow, necessarily. Not so. If anyone, right, because I'm not even guaranteeing the outcome that every man everywhere will obey this. But let me just say this to you. If anyone kills Cain, this is how I will view it. Vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. So this, this generic, general mercy that will go with Cain in his banishment and excommunication from the people of God then gets particularized in a twofold manner. Notice, and the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Now, um, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the offerings uh, and, and um, what, what Abel brought and what Cain brought and why God honored one, didn't honor the other. And we got into that kind of discussion about um, a, a, an essay that was written, recommended that whenever you're confused about the Cain and Abel story, appeal to Midrash. That's how we read the Old Testament. Again, old, uh, old Jewish uh, commentary, for better lack of a better term, commentaries on the text 
plunder the Midrash to find out what in the world is really going on and helping us understand the biblical text. If we follow that advice here in this state, we would find a pretty wild list of what in the world this mark put on Cain is. So I'll give you a couple examples if we were to follow the Midrash. We would find something uh, uh, noteworthy is constant trembling. That is, he gave Cain a tremor in the body, um, uh, and he was constantly in trembling uh, kind of mode. Other people say uh, other Midrashic comments are something along the lines of a tattoo. That is the sign. He put a mark on Cain. He gave him a tattoo. Some suggest it's a scar, particularly on his face, so that anybody who was to approach Cain face-to-face and perhaps to do him in, they would see that scar, and somehow that scar would communicate to them, "Uh uh-oh, this guy is wild. I need to walk away and leave him alone. Um, Perhaps um, some of the more interesting ones uh, was that God caused a horn to grow out from his forehead both as an identifying freakish mark and a defense mechanism that he could employ. Um, that, was, that was one. Uh, it was served as a both and. If they got into it, Cain did have a kind of a, um, an option, um, the, 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 the rhino option. Um, a bright-colored coat. A bright-colored coat um, also was suggested in Midrashic writing. Um, and then finally, uh, if, if you kind of look at some more conservative uh, evangelical Protestant writers, some uh, suggest that it is um, uh, the city of Enoch. The city that he builds is the sign that was given to Cain. Um, I guess the point is this, however, of how I think we need to read the text. It is Either way, we really don't know what the mark was. Conjecture on the mark is probably unwise. We could have fun with it, and we could think about it a little bit and contemplate what it may have and may not have been. But ultimately, we just walk away from it knowing we don't need to know it. But what we do need to grasp is that there is generic and basic mercies which are contained in judgment given to Cain, which will allow him to live some season of life under God's patience. That's what we learn from it. That, 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 that Cain could have just been annihilated, and we'll get to why he wasn't. The reasoning, why wouldn't he have just have been executed? Um, there's reasons that we can think through. But one of the big pieces we learn about the mark that is particularized to uphold the promise of general mercy attending to the path of Cain is God showed some level of mercy that is common to a human being to allow him to live out his life under God's patience. Secondly, so one, on the one sense, you take a generic mercy and you you mark it with some particular comment, and that was the mark that God gave to Cain. Again, it's not a surety of promise that anybody will see. They'll probably see the eyes or see the mark and freak out, but it won't mean they won't kill you. It just if, if they do end up killing you in the exchange, I'll make sure there's judgment for them. The other um, particularized aspect of this general mercy that God kind of marks out uh, to show patience somehow generally to Cain, non-savingly, but generally to Cain, is he allows his wife to go with him. 
Um, notice how he describes it in the passage. He says sevenfold, and he says, and the Lord put a mark on Cain. Again, we have no idea what that is, um, and, and I'll give you one more. Uh, one more that appeared in Midrashic writing was he gave him a dog to go with him. So who knows? Lest anyone should find him, should attack him. And then he gives him the second piece. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod. Again, the direction of east, of Eden. Verse 17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. God mercifully allows Cain to take his wife. Now, um, there, it's, it's hard to say for sure, um, given what we see in the text, um, Cain knew his wife. Notice it doesn't say Cain was given a wife. Uh, we're, we're not sure how to read that. Um, Calvin says this is obvious that Cain was married and that Cain also most likely had children by this time. Uh, he was already married. Um, given his age, given the year that this probably occurred at the sacrificial scene, Um, Cain was of age, he was uh, perhaps in his 40s, he was married, probably had children, and uh, then God showed him a generic mercy yet again to allow family to continue on. Now again, it's a cursed family, a lineage of wickedness, but it nonetheless will be some common goodness Cain will experience before he passes. Luther, on the other hand, is saying this is a pledge of kindness that God somehow shows mercy to Cain in giving him a wife. And that's how we're to understand at this point in time. Uh, we talked about that in our small group and just thought, you know, uh, not to be uh, too light about it, but who drew the short straw and had to go with Cain? Um, which one of the, the family members uh, had to, you know, hey, uh, Adam's going to, the father, uh, patriarch, will send daughter, so-and-so, to be with Cain uh, to live out his days in a very difficult existence and uh, quasi-misery. Um, So we hope for her that that wasn't given her. But again, the idea, Calvin says, we don't need to worry about it. They were already married. That's why the text just says he knew her again, or he knew her, and they had a child, uh, moving the narrative forward. But again, either way, Cain and his family, whether he was given a wife or whether he had a wife, are shown generic provisional mercy by God in order to show patience and to provide some measure of quality of life to Cain. Yet he be in the house of unbelief, in the house of rejection. This, again, is a sign for those today who live under generic provisional mercies. Fear the leaf that is blowing, but they fear not God, as Luther says. They remain under God's patience, Yet they ought to hear the warning, it is provisional. A day is coming when this patience wears out. Unbelief must give way to repentance. Now, perhaps the question we do then need to ask to move the text forward in the idea of general provisional mercy is why would God give general mercy to Cain even if it is indirect or void of saving mercy or saving grace? Why show Cain generic or common mercy at all? Why not just, again, be done with Cain as he showed no mercy to Abel? Why would you then turn and show a mercy to him, even if it's void of saving mercy? 
to allow him to still know his wife, still have the pleasure of a son, build up a city and experience rule of law, live cooperatively with other men and women in society. Why give Cain that pleasure at all? And the answer perhaps is twofold. First, we need to consider that God wanted Cain to feel the evil that he had committed. He wanted him to experience the just deserts and the hardships that come with wicked rebellion. Again, it's not that Cain went off. We could say some quality of life. Yeah, sure, to experience the love of a wife. There's a quality there. To experience the sun coming up, there's a mercy there. Um, to have, have a, a baby born, there's a joy there. Um, uh, to, to build a city, to found one, to uh, see it populated, um, to name it after your son. Again, show a pride, but nonetheless, there's, there's a quality there. There's a generic mercy shown there. I think as we look on it, the point is, um, but it's Abel who cries out. Cain proceeds but as a dead man walking. All the pleasures of this earth, the building of a city, the founding of a family, the joy of a morning, the joy of industry and craft, are all hollow in the end. It's it's not that by doing those things you you escape judgment in in another means or another manner. It's just you have a different life lived under patience but judgment comes. Cain had a hard life. I mean, it was expressed where the ground still would yield very harshly to him. So even in the building of the city, we can imagine it was no easy task. It wasn't like he went home every day proud as Beacock. Um, he lived a very hard existence, even if it be a patient one. Calvin comments, so Cain is like a criminal who has been summoned God puts him on trial, the sentence is delivered, but the execution is only partly carried out. The second reason for why would God show mercy to Cain at all, even if it be a generic mercy and a non-saving mercy, and this is of particular interest to us this morning here uh, on this Lord's Day gathered for each of us to consider, and it is this, for the sake of the elect. Let me say that again and clarify just a little bit and think with me for a moment about the story of the Bible. Why would God give merciful provisions to Cain, even if they are indirect and void of saving grace? Why would he allow Cain to live out in a manner of general mercies? And the answer is for the sake of the elect, who, although born apart from the covenantal mercies, and the covenantal promises of God will hear of his covenantal mercies and his covenantal promises, exercise faith, and so be saved. You see, there will be offspring belonging to the family line of Cain who will experience covenant mercy, who will experience salvation, who will be members of the Church of Christ's faith, One author comments this way about it, quote, in this manner, Naaman. So you're thinking about how generic mercy, showing patience for a season, 
uh, visits in particular ways upon the elect through the mercy of God across time. Again, in this manner, Naaman. Do you remember that? It was in uh, Naaman as a reference. Uh, perhaps you don't have right handily. Uh, Naaman is a reference to the uh, individual from Syria in First Kings who uh, showed up. He had leprosy and was told to go see Elijah and see the servant and the prophet of God and visit him. Now, uh, Naaman being a man of unbelief in general and generic mercy, non-covenanted mercy, doesn't know the covenant people, doesn't know the covenant promises, doesn't know Christ through promise. But he is told to go and see this prophet of the people of God. And then he goes and he sees Elijah. And it was a story that you remember from Sunday school. Go down in the water seven times and dip yourself. And he got angry and upset. And then, you know, this is a waste of time. This is ridiculous. And someone uh, intercedes for him. And says, you should listen to this man of God. He's telling you something true. And then he then goes down and he dips and dips and dips. And I think the text reads something uh, that his skin was like a child's or something. To speak of the clarity, he was a leper and now he's clean. And then he turns and is converted. This man, this is the picture of, uh, of a man from the line of Cain who then would be growing up apart from the covenant mercies and the covenant family, who, who observed the law and practice it and do it and teach it and live it. This man grew up apart from those means in the house of unbelief, and yet because patience was shown, many are saved. I'll conclude the quote. One author, again, makes this comment, quote, in this manner, Naaman, the king of Nineveh, and you think of Jonah, Nebuchadnezzar and others from among the Gentiles were saved by accidental mercy. For they did not have the promises of Christ, as did the Jews, accordingly because of the elect who had to be saved by generic mercy. Cain was granted both protection of his life and a wife with offspring. End quote. So, you see, even in judgment, God showed a measure of patience generically toward Cain. And why would he do so? But for the sake of the elect, who would be saved out of his cursed lineage. Let me conclude this way with you, um, and, and we'll take the next portion of the text next week. But let me conclude with you this way. For Cain, to be clear, for Cain himself. And then to us this morning as we look on the text, for Cain himself and those who follow in his unbelief. Right? Because we're looking at Cain as a real historical figure. And, and we're looking at God's treatment of Cain as a way in which God interacts and treats unbelief in general. So let me suggest for Cain himself and those who follow in his steps of unbelief, they have no portion in the choicest privileges of rest and peace. For true rest and true peace 
belongs exclusively to those who have faith in Christ. Let me urge you, it's not the absence of turbulence that is peace. It's a different kind of peace that belongs to redemption. It's the kind that you have cares. You do. I know you do. And I do. We do. And in this age, as pilgrims on the way, we always will. But to the house of faith, to those whose faith terminates in Christ, they hear a different word. They hear, cast those cares on God. Because he cares for you. This doesn't belong to Cain. It doesn't belong to unbelief. The the, the house of belief says, I have anxiety, then pray. And exchange that momentary anxiety for the peace belonging to God. That's what belongs to you because of your covenant to Christ through faith. He and all of his benefits belong to you. Not some of them. You don't get part of him. You get all of him and all of his benefits. Take your anxieties. Whoever, I heard a leaf blowing. I'm scared. It's dark. I'm nervous. Great, pray. I heard a leaf blowing. I'm scared. You have nowhere to run. Those are the two lives to live. The distinction between the house of unbelief and the house of assured peace and rest is a faith that terminates on the Lord Jesus Christ alone. He is its fullest and terminal point. It doesn't go beyond him. It isn't supplemented around him. It doesn't make up what he is lacking. It terminates on him. This is the distinction between the house of Cain and culture and the house of the people of God and faith. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this picture into Cain and to Abel, to the distinction between believing and unbelieving peoples.